Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Has the rally been justified? Ivan Feinseth joining us now, Tigris Financial Partners Chief Investment Officer. Ivan, has the rally been justified by fundamentals? Well, I mean, there's two issues. And the main issue is there's no place else to put your money. And it, the powerful results have been driven by the incredible efforts of Fed Chairman Powell. I think Fed Chairman Powell single-handedly saved the world. I mean, he acted swiftly and decisively in March, pumping tremendous amounts of liquidity into the financial markets, which in turn caused other central bankers around the world to do the same. And I think that's been the powerful driver of the recovery and the fact that, look, I, I believe in uh, the resiliency and the uh, of the and the intestinal fortitude of the human spirit that we will come back. We've come back from many bad situations and innovation has led this recovery and it's been led well, by the tech stocks, which have empowered the ability to make the shift to support a remote and dispersed workforce, as an example. Okay, I, I get that. Um, and it all makes sense. That narrative makes sense. And then you see things like Tesla, where they do a stock split and their shares go infinitely higher. They go up by 12%, even though you're basically just changing a $5 bill into five ones, which shouldn't all things being equal, make a stock more valuable. You see a similar type of move in Apple. What gives, I mean, are these signs of froth? Well, I mean, there's always pockets of unique focus, if you will. I think Apple deserves its valuation. I mean, we have a tremendous catalyst coming up in the launch of the 5G-enabled uh, iPhone 12s. That will kick off a tremendous super cycle because many have been waiting to upgrade to the high-speed 5G-enabled phones. And there's going to be a huge pent-up demand as the average iPhone in service today is over five years old. So that will drive a... Um, a new upgrade cycle in Apple phones, along with their Apple's focus on increasing their services revenue and offering more and more services, entertainment, gaming, uh, payment, shopping, um, that will enable them to further monetize this over one and a half billion installed iPhone user base. All right. So, Ivan, you know, when I was in business school, when we were talking about and learning about markets, one of the things I learned was you need to have breadth. You need, if you want to have a healthy market, you need to have a breadth across a wide swath of stocks and sectors. We are absolutely not seeing that in this market. How concerned are you about that in terms of the lack of breadth in this market? Well, that is correct. I mean, it has been a very narrowly driven rally, primarily by tech stocks. But... <clears throat> technology drives our economy forward. I mean, so it's not unusual that they have been leading the market and increasingly becoming a dominant part of the economy. So two things are going to happen. I mean, the market is forward looking and it is predicting that we will see this broadening out, that it will we'll see um, improvements in the industrial sector and the consumer sector, which we are seeing. There is a positive cadence of economic data that shows the manufacturing sector is improving. There's gradual improvement in consumer sentiment. So the cons consumer's outlook is improving. Retail is improving. Restaurants, where they can. So you saw huge jumps in retail sales when 
stores opened. You saw a huge jump in people going to restaurants when they could, when restaurants started to open with outdoor dining. So there is pent-up demand. And I, will, I think you will see this broadening out. The other uh, thing driving the market is optimism that we will get a vaccine, hopefully at least available by the end of the year. We have three companies scheduled to go into, three partnerships scheduled to go into trials sometime in October. So that is the one thing. The, the one thing that will get us over the pandemic is a vaccine. And if we can get uh, some type of approval by the end of the year and ramp up production in the beginning of the next year, we will see a tremendous recovery and the market will have pr correctly predicted the turnaround. All right. So Ivan, outside of the FANG plus stocks, the six, seven names that have really been driving this market, where do you see some opportunity here if we're able to look towards the other side, perhaps sometime in 2021? Um, I think you will see a bounce back in the auto stocks. And you know, looking at Tesla and the uh, optimism over the electric car, General Motors is a tremendous play. Mary Barra says she wants to have 20 electric vehicles on the market by 2023. Not that far off. Also, um, the valuation. I mean, there, she even was asked the question, would you spin off this electric vehicle uh, division at some point to unlock value? She said nothing's off the table. So General Motors will become a incredible electric vehicle play. Um, I think some of the depressed retailers, some of the depressed restaurants, the, and the cruise industry. Yeah. I mean, these stocks were decimated by no fault of their own. The cruise industry in January was looking at a record year for 2020 and was decimated, and they are doing everything possible to put in place the ability to safely sail when they get the opportunity, to, uh, when they are allowed to start to sail again. I mean, a company like Norwegian, which is my number one pick in the cruise industry. So there are a lot of depressed stocks. So I still like a lot of the tech stocks, including NVIDIA, with their announcement yesterday of their new high-speed graphic cards. Um, my other favorite chip plays in the 5G rollout are Qualcomm and Skyworks Solutions and Corvo. Skyworks and Corvo are both Apple key yeah. Apple suppliers. So the 5G rollout is a powerful investing theme. The recovery of the consumer sector will be a powerful investing theme. And I believe it will recover and recover very strongly. Just really 20 seconds. How high could the valuation of Amazon get? It's now $1.75 trillion. What's the peak in your view? Well, I, I have been recommending Amazon for some time. It's on our focus list in our focus opportunity portfolio. I don't really use price targets, but Amazon, I mean, they're just incredibly efficient in their delivery and fulfillment and logistics processes that they do support a lot of retail. They yeah. continue, they, they are the biggest cloud infrastructure supplier, which prov service provider, which has enabled the remote uh, workforce and the distributed workforce. Yeah. They're getting into healthcare. They just announced this. Then what this is this in 20 seconds, tracker. Ivan? We'll have you back. We'll talk about Amazon. <laughs> I will tell you this. It is something that you're not alone with. A lot of people saying they can see a path lower, but they're not willing to sell their Amazon shares. Ivan Feinset, thanks for being a good sport and thanks for being with us. Really appreciate it. This is the story of the day. 
buy risk, period, full stop. The Fed has your back. Maybe Washington, D.C. will get your back as well. We will find out. And right now, let's find out with Steve Chivarone, Federated Hermes Portfolio Manager. Steve, we have heard from person after person who's come on this show and said, buy risk. That is the result right now from the Federal Reserve that has your back, from the idea that we probably are entering a growth phase after the absolute uh, decimation of the mm -hmm. labor market earlier this year. Do you agree? Yeah, look, I, I think the story behind the markets is set is simple. I think we've exited recession and we're entering the next recovery, which will lead to the next expansion. Um, and I think the reason why we've been able to get to highs so quickly is because there's three stats, I think, that explain it. Incomes are up seven and a half percent versus last year. Mortgage foreclosures are down from three quarters of a percent to two thirds of a percent. And while we did have 200 bankruptcies in the second quarter, that's roughly one fourth of what we were doing on a quarterly basis in the great financial crisis. So both Congress and the Federal Reserve have protected capital. They've protected capital in this in this kind of downturn and the consumer and businesses are better positioned than you would expect them to be given the severity of the economic contraction that we had. Steve, what won't you buy right now? What won't I buy? Well, look, I think, you know, Piling into a treasury bond right here is, is probably not the smartest thing at, you know, between 50 and 70 basis points. I think, you know, more importantly, and I, I am talking a little bit my own book here, but I wouldn't buy a whole bunch of ETFs. I don't want to own everything right now. I think that there are a lot of companies that are not going to do well coming out of this. And it's incumbent upon investors to be able to sort through industries and pick the winners and avoid the losers. I think that that's the key theme here. All right. Well, Steve, you know, one of the issues you talked about some of the positive economic developments, but the fact is a lot of that was driven by the fiscal stimulus, putting money into people's hands, into consumers' hands, into small and mid-sized mm -hmm. businesses' hands. Uh, and of course, the Fed is there with the backstop. The Fed, you know, this stimulus is starting to wear out. How critical is it that we get new stimulus to continue to support the economy? Yeah, I think it's important. I don't know. I don't I wouldn't say it's critical. Um, I think, look, when you've done such a good job of supporting the economy thus far, it, it's kind of dumb to fumble the ball in the red zone here. Right. I mean, you're probably one fiscal package away uh, from getting yourself to, towards a vaccine. But if you looked at the personal income number that came out earlier this week, what you saw was that while the, the impact of stimulus has has waned a little bit, you have seen a pickup in compensation from 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 work. And so I think, look, the economy is healing. It's getting better. It's starting to, to become self-sustaining. But there's enough uncertainty that I think one more bill probably makes sense. So it'd be nice to see Congress, you know, get their acting gear here and, and, and get something done. All right, Steve. So as we think about the equity markets, the theme obviously has been the, you know, the, the handful of tech stocks, the FANG plus stocks mm -hmm. driving the market. When does value get its uh, mm -hmm. time in the limelight, if ever? Yeah, I think people are, are maybe misreading the, the narrow breadth of the market. Narrow breadth in a market at the end of a cycle is very worrisome, right? If every company's hit their 52-week high and there's only two or three that are left that are pushing you higher, that is a sign of exhaustion. What we have here, though, is the companies that did the best during the recession have let us out. And the other companies haven't participated yet. And we think that's really a sign of dry powder. And so as this recovery continues to take hold, as we do get closer to some kind of treatment vaccine type protocol, we think that you're going to see other companies, some of which are value, are, are going to start to participate in a much bigger way as the economic 
you know, recovery intensifies here. And so we, we think that we're on the verge of that. We think you can play it in the value space. We also think you can play a similar theme in small caps. And we think you, you really don't want to be massively underweight international because those international indices have so much more value than, than, than the U.S. do in terms of the, the sector composition. Four NASDAQ 100 stocks are up more than 220% so far yeah. this year. Yesterday, Zoom video communications rose more than 40%. One day, uh, that was the rally. Some people saying that the justification for this is that the low yields make everything cheap. Is that the story? I think that's part of it. Look, I mean, you know, equity market multiples are, are related to bond yields and particularly corporate bond yields. And if you look at where the corporate bond yield is, the BAA, it would suggest that the S&P could trade upwards of, of a high 20s or even low 30s multiple, which has never been the case before. I think that's part of it. But I think the bigger story here as well is that we're in the middle of a digital revolution. And what this pandemic has not slowed that revolution, it's accelerated it. You saw it in the Salesforce earnings. Company after company are looking to upgrade their tech, understanding that that's gonna be a bigger part of the way that they do business. And so I think you've got this very interesting combination of this digital industrial revolution occurring at a time when you know bond yields are so low um, and the world has a scarcity of growth and it exists in the US, it exists in US tech stocks. And so if you want access to that growth, there's a yeah. high price for it. So, Steve, are Robin Hooders right? I mean, are they on the right paths to just buy everything that they say, look, a stock splits as good of a reason as any to buy a stock? They're winning. Look, I, I think when you think about Robinhood, the first thing we have to remember, especially those of us that are, quote unquote, professional investors, is everyone deserves a right to have access to the market. Um, there are going to be folks there that maybe don't have as much history and experience with the market. That's why you know, media like yours exist to help them understand that. I think ultimately, though, what companies are realizing is that if there is a retail demand, if they can make their shares more attractive or more accessible to those retail investors, they're going to get rewarded because those retail investors want access to some of these companies. There will be some names that end in tears for folks because there's going to be some hype trades. But at the end of the day, I think anytime there's more interest in the public markets and the compounding returns, that's a good thing. It's our job as an investment industry to help make sure that those people have the tools and information to make the best decisions that they can. All right, Steve, if I'm brave enough to look to the other side of this pandemic and I see an economic recovery in the next 12 months really accelerating, what are some of the beaten down sectors I should be looking at? Am I brave enough to go into financials, for example? Yeah, look, I, I think if you think that economic growth is going to improve, then you should expect, you know, long bonds to move up a little bit. Not, not anything you know, that would be scary and that would be beneficial to banks. I, again, I, we come back to small caps and we think small caps for three reasons. They're cyclical. So as you get a cyclical improvement in the economy, they're going to they're going to benefit from that, much like value stocks. But in addition, 50 percent of their debt is variable rate bank debt. So low rates forever are really going to benefit them. And then finally, in, in a year, in the first year following a recession bottom, small caps tend to outperform large by about 25 percent. We think that's going to be your your, your kind of play on octane here in terms of a cyclical recovery. Play on octane. I like that. Steve Chiverone <laughs> from Federated Hermes. Thank you so much.
So everyone who talks about the economic recovery says it will hinge on the trajectory of the virus. The trajectory of the virus is unclear. It is unsuspecting. It can pop up when you least suspect it, even in places like New Zealand, which seem to have gotten it under control. Dr. Deborah Fuller joining us now, University of Washington School of Medicine microbiology professor. Dr. Fuller, where are we in this? Some people talk about going back to school, that it's going to be a disaster. Other people say it's fine. Kids are not uh, vectors of this particular virus. What's your take? Yeah, so we're at, you know, a phase where, uh, you know, we're, we understand how to, you know, potentially uh, reduce transmission through, you know, wearing a mask and practicing, um, you know, hand washing and, and the like. Um, but I'm not so sure that, you know, the public is actually, you know, following through um, correctly in all those practices. And I think that's where, you know, sometimes you're seeing some schools opening up and saying, hey, we can implement all these practices. And then they see, a, you know, a high spike uh, in, in infection rate. Uh, you know, unless, you know, people are 100% compliant with all of the, you know, the rules, um, that virus is going to take an opportunity and transmit. So, so I think it's very difficult, uh, you know, in the absence of a vaccine, uh, to get everybody to collectively, um, you know, work as a team together, wear their masks, wash their hands, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, follow the safe distancing practices that have been recommended. If they do that, we could probably safely open schools. And that's just you know, get people to cooperate. Dr. Fuller, there's so many unknowns, at least from my vantage point. You say 100% compliant. Can people pack into subway cars if they have uh, masks on? Can people go to outdoor dining and sit not exactly six feet away from each other, uh, but take their masks off to eat as long as they are outside? Are these things all safe? Or are we already engaging in practices that will necessarily spread the virus as we start to become uh, less socially distant and try to get back to normal? Yeah, there's no 100% guarantee, you know, that all these practices will, you know, if you implement them together, and we're talking about, you know, both the, the six feet distancing and the wearing of the mask and the hand washing. Um, but there is, uh, you know, uh, evidence out there that it can reduce transmission significantly. So it doesn't mean that, say, some virus still won't transmit, but the, uh, you know, the way viruses work is they, uh, you know, the more people that get infected, then that makes more people that can infect others. So if you can reduce the number of transmission events to very low levels, then, yeah, people can go about their business much, uh, you know, more effectively, and you can start to see uh, the incidences of transmission decline. That's what you saw in some of the other countries, like uh, uh, New Zealand, where they just implemented these safe practices, and you quickly saw uh, the, uh, you know, the, that sort of, you know, rate of transmission rate go down to almost zero. So it is possible. It's just, uh, it's, and it's not hundred percent guaranteed, but it's, you know, better than what we have right now. All right, Professor, let's switch gears a little bit to the vaccine. That's a discussion I think everybody wants to have. Everybody's looking for, uh, towards a vaccine. We know that there are approximately a dozen entities out there that are working aggressively on a vaccine or in various stages. Give us your read of the landscape. I feel like I need a scorecard to keep track of, of all these entities out there, whether they're universities or pharmaceutical companies or biotech companies. Companies, Give us your sense of where we are and maybe a sense of timing. 
Yeah, so this is actually, we're entering a very exciting phase for vaccine development. Right now, there are, I think, about seven candidate vaccines that have entered into phase three clinical trials. And that's a a stage where we're actually testing efficacy of the vaccine as well as continuing to test its safety. It's going in tens of thousands of people where some people will get a placebo and other people get the vaccine. And then it's just really a waiting uh, game where it really the viruses control the timeline right now. Uh, What they're going to do is wait and see, you know, until a certain number of people become infected. And uh, then they take, uh, you know, they open up, take the blinders off because they're blinded to, you know, who belongs to what group. And they're going to determine are all the people who became infected or the majority of them in the placebo group and none of them in the vaccine group. And if that's the case, then they can then go to licensure and start to manufacture and distribute this vaccine for you. So the fact that we have seven of them is very promising. That means that these vaccines have passed, you know, high uh, marks, high uh, um, uh, marks for safety, as well as demonstrating the kind of immunogenicity that you're going to need to see in, a, in, a, in an effective vaccine. So this is exciting. Uh, and so we're at, in a sense, the final phase, and we're perhaps maybe only months away from seeing the first uh, vaccine uh, license for, for human use. Professor, how, how sure can we be about the safety of these um, vaccines? Because, you know, usually it takes years and years of testing, and it seems like we're going to get a, potentially a vaccine within a year, year and a half from the beginning of all this, and that calls into question safety. How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, the, the years and years has to do with how the process is has changed, you know, in, in the event of this pandemic. And the years is because the phase one, two and three are done sequentially normally with a pandemic. They are being done in an overlapping fashion. So all of the safety tests are still being done. Uh, nothing is being skipped. So by the time we have a vaccine that completes phase three successfully and shown to be effective and safe, we can be confident that it has gone through all of the check marks that are absolutely required, um, you know, right now to uh, to license a vaccine for public use. So, Dr. Fuller, you would be fine getting one of the first vaccines if it came out? Yeah, I wish I could, you know, but I, you know, what you have to be aware of is that when these vaccines start coming out, they're not going to be billions of doses suddenly available for anybody to take. It's likely going to have to go into first responders yeah. and healthcare workers and the like. Uh, and so it could be for some of us months, even after the vaccines have been released. Uh, for public use before we're eligible to start to, you know, show up in line to actually receive them. You know, yeah. with that said, as I've, I've said many times, I think that it's going to take multiple vaccines to really uh, be able to tamp down this pandemic. And you're going to see we have seven in phase three. You're going to see hopefully at least uh, half a dozen, maybe five or six over the course of the next six months. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's my hope that they get licensed for human use. Deborah Fuller, University of Washington School of Medicine, microbiology professor. Thank you so much for bringing us uh, the facts here as we try to look for some sort of vaccine. The economy has been the housing market, which has really struck me at a time of so much job loss and so much pain that we talk about in the consumer sector. The idea that you've seen incredible resilience and bidding wars in suburban areas for houses. Lumber prices tripling uh, in just a few months. Joining us, Andrew Hollenhorst, Citigroup Global Markets Chief U.S. Economist. Andrew, what do you make of the housing rally? 
it, it's just incredible what's happened in housing. I mean, I think we've had a more optimistic outlook on what the reopening recovery rebound was going to look like. And the data keeps coming in for housing and it just keeps being stronger than expected. We saw it earlier with mortgage applications that have moved to multi-year highs and really stayed there. But now you're starting to see that come through in sales and starts really just across the board. So, so an incredible surge in housing activity. Andrew, yesterday our Bloomberg colleagues put out a story saying that the Federal Reserve had bought nearly a trillion dollars of mortgage bonds over the past couple of months, that they've been uh, one of the hugest buyers of this sector, pushing down rates, solidifying this market. How much has the housing uh, gains, how much have the housing gains really resulted directly from Fed intervention here? The Fed policy is so important. And when we look at the U.S. economy, the sector that's probably most immediately sensitive to the Fed and to interest rates is the housing sector. Um, so I think it's really mostly about rates coming down. You got lower 10-year yields that led mortgage rates to move lower. Um, yes, they're purchasing mortgage-backed securities as well, which is keeping those spreads compressed. So um, you can't understate the importance of the of the Fed, or you can't overstate the importance of the Fed in the housing market right now. All right, Andrew, we had some ADP employment numbers out today, uh, you know, weaker than expected here. We are seeing some improvement in the labor market, but maybe losing a little bit of steam here. And that's so critical for the U.S. economy overall. What's your view of the labor market? So I think, again, it's another area where we've been continuously surprised to the upside with jobs reports. I'd, I'd be a little bit careful with the ADP number. Um, the economy is just moving so quickly that it's been difficult for ADP to kind of keep up with what we're seeing in the official statistics that will get out on Friday. Right. Um, so we still think that that, that number can look more positive. Um, but, but really important to see this rehiring continue. Um, that's been supporting incomes, um, even with a very high unemployment rate. So, you know, we'd like to get back closer to normal. It's obviously a long road, but but so far, the you know, the, the, the last few months have been a positive story. All right. So how critical is it that Congress follows through with another round of what I'm going to call a significant uh, piece of fiscal stimulus? The first, the last round, the third round, if you will, the three trillion dollars was done on generally a bipartisan basis. But it looks like politics is, is creeping back into this round. Yeah, so I think everybody thinks it would be a good idea to have more fiscal stimulus here. I think that's on both sides of the aisle. I think most economists agree. The Fed clearly agrees. We've heard that from a number of Fed speakers. Um, you, you do want to put it in context, though, that we've had a very significant fiscal stimulus already. Um, and if you look at what's happened with the income support that you've had, really, the government coming in and substituting for incomes that were lost um, due to the results of the pandemic, um, you see that incomes have been supported. Consumption, of course, was lower because a lot of avenues for consumption were just closed down. So it means that the economy came through this period of forced savings. Individual households have saved about a trillion above what they normally would have saved. Um, so now you have things like unemployment benefits that are expiring. That's certainly not a good thing for the economy. We'd like to see those restored. Um, but even if they're not, I think you do have a lot of savings coming before it. So, so uh, certainly a better story if we can get that next leg of fiscal policy. Um, but, you know, can this, you know, consumption rebound continue even if you don't get the next leg of fiscal stimulus? I think at least for the next few months, that story probably still stays intact. I get more concerned as I look out to Q4 into 2021. I'm um, going back to the labor market. This is still a deeply depressed labor market that still needs more help. Andrew uh, Hollenhorst of Citigroup speaking with us. Andrew, 
I'm a little uncomfortable as we talk about this uh, for a variety of reasons. We're talking about the incredible boom in housing. We're talking about the incredible boom in equities. We're talking about an unemployment rate above 10% uh, with some permanent losses coming in, job losses, job cuts, particularly at the lower income level. This all just goes into the story of the widening gap between the rich and the poor, the people who can buy houses, who can buy stocks, and those who can't and who've just been laid off. Andrew, what is the structural challenge? What is the economic result of this widening divide? Yeah, it's a real issue for the U.S. economy, and certainly those inequalities have been exacerbated by the crisis that we've come through. And that's where, you know, I'm encouraged to see the Federal Reserve, for instance, changing their framework, talking about pushing the unemployment rate even lower so that we can start to bring some of those workers back into the economy. Um, I think that's what was happening as we got down to a three and a half percent unemployment rate. Um, Again, this, this is a long road. I don't think anyone is saying that you know, this is going to be easy to get back to something like a three and a half percent unemployment rate. But but you really do want to get back down to those very low rates of unemployment to bring a more inclusiveness into hiring, into the labor market. Um, Unfortunately, that's where we were. That's not where we are now. And I think that's what monetary and fiscal are trying to get us back to. Meanwhile, uh, talking about getting back to today is back to school. And you see a lot of people (laughs) taking their kids uh, off uh, to their first day, first day perhaps since March. And Andrew, I do wonder what the effect is on the younger cohort. I was looking at data that showed that the 16 to 25 year demographic had an unemployment rate of more than 18% versus that 10.2% average, that they've been absolutely pummeled. Those entry-level jobs have just evaporated. What's the longer-term economic effect of that? Yeah, so that's part of why you want to try to cure the problems in the labor market as quickly as possible. We saw this after 2008, where you had students coming out of high school, students coming out of college, trying to get that first job and finding that that first job just wasn't available. Um, And that's probably even more the case with this downturn, Um, again, because we've seen those entry-level jobs go away, um, those lower-wage jobs go away. um, And that's a potential avenue for a permanent structural scarring on the economy. And that's what you're really trying to avoid. I mean, we we all know that the situation um, is bad in terms of a high unemployment rate right now. Um, But what you want to do with policy is try to limit the amount of time that we spend at these levels um, so that you can get those individuals that we were just talking about back into jobs, integrated back into the labor market. Because if you have an extended period where you're not in the labor market, that means that human capital is not being built. That means that that attachment between workers and firms is being lost. So really important to try to get that back intact as quickly as possible. So, uh, Andrew, what are the good folks at Citigroup thinking about the economy, the GDP number, really through the back half of this year into next year? Give us a sense of kind of how you think the recovery might look. Yeah, so it's looking like every bit as bad as the contraction was in Q2, the rebound in Q3 is not going to completely make up for that, but we're going to have this kind of very elevated annualized growth number for, for Q3. And you know, just like in Q2, we spent a lot of time talking about this negative 30% growth is an annualized number. So you're essentially multiplying the contraction by four. And also, this is some things that are transitory. These are some things that are transitory that are going to be reversed, and that reversal will come in Q3. You should also be careful with the Q3 number. Um, But now I'll tell you that that Q3 number looks like it's going to be 
probably closer to 30% than 20% annualized. And when you know we had first done our forecast, we thought maybe it's more like 20. Again, you're growing from very low levels. I wanna, I wanna emphasize that. This is just trying to get back to kind of a more normal level of activity, um, but it still looks like a very powerful growth rate in the third quarter. How about 21? Uh, is there going to be meaningful growth in 21 and how much of that growth is dependent upon stimulus? Yeah, I think we can continue to grow in, in 2021, but but that is where you start thinking more about stimulus. Like I said, there's a lot of kind of stimulus that, that was done. We had the stimulus checks, we had the enhanced unemployment insurance. Um, I think that will carry us through probably at least Q3, if not the rest of the year. As we get into 2021, um, that's when you really would like to see another leg for, for stimulus, um, where you'd like to see more help for unemployed workers, you know, people who are unemployed through no fault of their own. Um, you'd like to see um, other forms of spending, things like infrastructure that have a high multiplier. I mean, those are probably things that you can think about after the election. Andrew Hollenhorst of Citigroup, thank you so much. Whether it's uh, euro uh, you know, strength or, or dollar weakness, let's get that uh, sorted out with Jean-Claude Trichet. He's a former ECB president. He always makes our shows better. So we're delighted that Mr. Trichet joins us this morning. Uh, Mr. Trichet, there's a lot of talk about whether the euro is just too high. I don't know at what point it becomes problematic, but there was a warning shot from the ECB chief economist saying, like, look, th this could mess with monetary policy. Does it? Yes, I think, uh, I think, of course, that it is a very, very important element uh, to consider. The euro went up vis-à-vis -vis the dollar and many uh, other currencies by uh, around 12% over a certain period of time. And the Europe and the area does not need that, of course, uh, taking into account uh, the uh, difficulty of the present situation, the difficulty of the recovery, and also the fact that in comparison with the U.S., we have a growth and a catching up process after and in, in time of pandemic, which, which takes time and uh, we are not in the best situation possible. So uh, I would say uh, beggar thy neighbor policy is never appropriate. And I am a little bit hurt not by the Fed itself, because the language of the Fed is very, very uh, prudent and cautious in terms of uh, exchange rate. But from time to time, the executive branch in the U.S. is talking down the dollar, which is absolutely inappropriate, obviously. There is no place for a bigger than never policy in a situation where we are. And I hope that uh, they will be as responsible as possible. Uh, I'm speaking of the executive branch of the United States. But Monsieur Trichet, what is the level that starts becoming really uncomfortable for Euro? No, I, I will not pr pronounce any level. Any level. Uh, say that uh, plus 12% is a big change. Uh, in my, my predecessor and myself were commenting uh, such move. I qualified themselves as brutal myself, I remember, which uh, created some uh, emotion. But I really think that what we need is calm, stability, and certainly not talking down the main currency, uh, which is the dollar, uh, which is not at all appropriate, as I already said. Um, and you were very clear in your comments, Mr. Trichet, but, you know, from here, given the Fed policy, will dollar actually weaken even without that rhetoric from the executive that you were talking about? Well, I must confess, I expect uh, the first, to the extent that there is a dimension 
of uh, the exchange rate, which is associated with the recent decision of the Fed, I think it was totally overdone by the market. I mean, the, the Fed only said, uh, we will, if, if we do not get out of the present situation, we'll continue to have an accommodating policy. But the accommodating policy of the Fed doesn't mean negative interest rates. And in Europe, you have negative interest rates. So the fundamentals are below uh, all uh, the noise that we are hearing, in my opinion, there is a very good case for certainly not changing the uh, dollar-euro position based on the recent decision of the Fed. I don't think there is really a case for that, and I'm sure that the market will realize that there is no case for that. Well, Mr. Trichet, it's Kaylee in New York. A stronger currency can be a hindrance for inflation. And already data showed us yesterday consumer prices in the euro area falling for the first time in four years. How big of a problem does that create for the ECB? Well, the the, the problem of the ECB is more or less the same as uh, I would say in all major central banks. Of course, we have inflation, which is much too low. That inflation, which is much too low, creates uh, two problems. One problem is that uh, we have a uh, uh, risk of materialization of deflation. And of course, this is an ultimate risk that we must avoid. And second, of course, it calls for very low interest rates, which themselves have their own uh, drawbacks, particularly if uh, you are in a, in a time when you need more accommodating policies. So all taken into account, it is the situation of major central banks, the ECB has uh, to cope with that situation. And it seems to me that it does it as well as possible. I would say uh, uh, my successor is doing as well as possible and uh, the, the governing council is doing as well as possible, but the situation is demanding. And that's the reason why precisely we don't need at all a change in the overall condition that would be conducive to less growth and less activity in Europe. Right. Mr. Trichet, given the Fed's move last week with this move toward average inflation targeting, does that add some pressure for the ECB to follow the Fed's blueprint on that front? Well, first of all, uh, the uh, uh, review has started uh, in January in Europe, and uh, it will take a little time. I would say that uh, uh, seen from the European perspective, the idea of judging on the average inflation the uh, meeting the, the objective uh, is something which is natural in Europe. Uh, myself, I remember going to uh, various capitals, including Berlin, for instance, uh, in my time. I was claiming that we were uh, up to our responsibility when we were delivering more or less 1.9% average since the setting up of the euro. So uh, it, it was natural in Europe to reason on an average basis. Uh, uh, and I would say that also the fact is in Europe in principle, we consider the headline inflation as the inflation that you must look at because it's the inflation that our own fellow citizens are seeing. The core inflation is a different concept which is not seen by the uh, general public. So, of course, if you are following headline inflation, it goes up and down, up and down, and you have necessarily some kind of averaging to operate. But all that being said, we will see what the uh, ECB will do. Uh, what reassures me, in a way, in what has been decided in the U.S., is that the 2% 
uh, reference was not abandoned. You remember some uh, um, academics were recommending to go down to 1% or even 0%. Others were saying 4% is much better. I'm very happy with the 2%, which is, by the way, the reference in the US, in Japan, in the UK, and in the ECB, which was the first, by the way, to mention the 2% as a very, very important reference. So the fact that all central banks, including, I have to say, in many respects, Bank of China, have this kind of reference in mind is, in my opinion, helpful in terms of global financial stability, global monetary stability. Um, Monsieur Trichet, when you look at the, the specter of deflation, we started, you know, lockdown, looking at all this stimulus and thinking it could lead to very strong inflation, maybe even rampant inflation. Is the risk now, you know, deflationary hold and actually Europe becoming a lot more like Japan? Well, again, uh, what we know uh, in all advanced economies is that uh, Japan was very much ahead of the other uh, major economies, but, but we all are in that situation, which was very well summed up by Jay Powell uh, recently, namely, first, uh, we have a growth potential which is significantly lower than before. Second, we have uh, real interest rates, uh, uh, equilibrium interest rates that are much lower than before. And third, we have inflation, which uh, remains extremely low and abnormally low uh, for all reasons, and particularly the two reasons I mentioned, the materialization of potential deflationary risk and the too low interest, uh, nominal interest rates that are, uh, um, I would say, engineered by, by that situation. So that is the situation in all advanced economies, and it calls, of course, for getting out of that situation. Uh, the central banks are doing all what they can, in my opinion, even being much bolder than what was foreseen, and in particular the ECB with the pandemic emergency purchase program proved uh, uh, the capacity to react to extraordinarily difficult situations. Uh, but, I mean, the problem is to fight the pandemic at the present moment. As soon as we have fought uh, successfully against the pandemic, we will have the problem that we had before the pandemic. And the problem we had before the pandemic are the problem that I, we just uh, summed up. So uh, we uh, will see exactly how to get out. In my opinion, we will get out of that situation, but with the help of other partners, the central banks alone cannot change the growth potential, they cannot change the real neutral interest rates or equilibrium interest rates, and that, yeah. that is the responsibility of other partners. And of course, we have the main problem of the Phillips curves, uh, and uh, uh, there I, I could elaborate on that if, if we have time. Monsieur Trichet, we were talking about inflation. We talked about, of course, uh, the euro strength. And uh, we started by talking also about the Phillips curve. I mean, if you look at what the Phillips curve has told us so far, this is the, the economic concept that basically um, states that inflation and unemployment have a stable and inverse relationship. H how will that change because of the crisis? Looks like uh, it changed dramatically since the crisis, obviously. And uh, the turning point is uh, around Lehman Brothers and, uh, and a few years after Lehman Brothers. So we are now in a situation where the Phillips curve looks totally flat. And uh, uh, in major uh, advanced economies, clearly, even with full employment, 
you don't have the uh, inflation pickup that you would normally expect. And that, of course, is a major problem because it uh, uh, impacts uh, the full body of the central bank monetary policy, of course, in all those countries, and we were speaking of that a moment ago. Of course, uh, it is probably due to a number of factors, and academia has worked a lot on that, globalization, new technologies, but I would insist myself, I would stress that uh, in most countries, uh, the bargaining power of labor has diminished. That's obvious. And that is, of course, mainly uh, an economic problem, of course, but also a social political problem. And uh, I'm speaking of those countries that have full employment. In countries that are not at full employment, of course, it's not appropriate to suggest that uh, we should elevate the wages and salaries, because, because then, then it, it is not in line with the idea to have full employment. But in those countries like Japan, like the US before the pandemic, like uh, Germany, the Netherlands before the pandemic, and other countries, uh, Switzerland and so forth, it's abnormal, in my opinion, it's very abnormal that the very weak bargaining power of labor uh, calls for a unit labor cost to augment miserably and calls for a nominal evolution of wages and salaries uh, to be that flat. And uh, uh, I expect that it will change. It must change. It will have to change. Because, again, it's not only an economic problem, it's also a, a social economic problem. And uh, we see that on the social political uh, uh, dimension, it is more and more a major problem. So I am confident that we will solve that problem progressively, but we are uh, just in the middle of this problem, and pandemic is even aggravating, of course, uh, this uh, situation, because it creates a, mm -hmm. a new element to privilege, if I may, uh, uh, the uh, uh, job instead of asking for more wages and salaries increases. Right. Mr. Trichet, coming out of this pandemic, let's talk about other changes. Has the function of monetary policy completely changed? Are all of these exceptional monetary policies now going to have to become semi-permanent? Well, it's clear now that uh, we have, uh, but it was true before the pandemic. And before the pandemic, it was true that the new normal was very different from the previous normal. It was true that uh, we had certainly to take into account the uh, extraordinary uh, capacity of the central banks to be extraordinarily accommodating in utilizing a lot of various tools. That's obvious. Uh, in my opinion, my opinion has always been, in any case, the uh, uh, compass that we have is price stability. Price stability as a primary mandate, I'm speaking of course for the European Central Bank, but let's not forget, once you attain price stability, or uh, we, we are in the present situation where the problem is to go up to the level of the uh, objective, then you can accompany all other policies of the European Union. This is the treaty. The treaty says very, very clearly, uh, without prejudice to price stability, the uh, central bank, the system, the ECB, accompanies all the other policies of the, uh, of the European Union. I insist on that because uh, from time to time we are called to say, well, in the US they have two objectives, in, the, in Europe there is only one objective. There is one objective, but again, 
the mention is in the treaty that when this objective is attained or to be attained, then you have to accompany the other, uh, I would say, uh, elements of the policies. Monsieur Trichet, thank you so much for joining us today. As always, it makes us wiser on monetary policy. Jean-Claude Trichet there, the former ECB president. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.